Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church Podcast. We're happy that you would join us for today's teaching. As a church, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus, no matter who they are or where they are from. If you have any questions about Jesus, the church, or the teaching you're hearing today, please don't hesitate to contact us online at ericksoncovenant.ca. And now, let's listen to this week's teaching. Perhaps there's nothing more distressing than hearing groans of pain and sorrow. I don't know about you, but when I hear someone who has experienced tremendous tragedy, when I myself have been in a place where what's happened around me is something I can't can't express. I can't express what I'm experiencing. I can't express the pain. It's just a groan. Um, When I've sat with people or been with people who have just heard news that they can't place. They only can groan. I don't think there's anything more heart-wrenching than that. When tragedy overwhelms our comprehension, when our senses are filled with it, when we're left with this inarticulate sense that everything has ended and we groan. I know that when we look around us in the world, we have a lot of reasons to groan. Unexpected explosions rock a city, leaving dead in its wake. A little boy is walking in a park with a class, experiencing the great outdoors of God's creation, and a tree falls on him and kills him. There's a man wasting away from cancer in his bed, and he's not even 40 yet. Or a woman who continues to experience again and again suffering and abuse at the hands of someone who said, He loved her. Hurt upon hurt, ache upon ache, groans upon groans. Our world is groaning. We are groaning. We groan along with it because we experience the hurt and the suffering either personally or as a people. Either because people we love are groaning or just vicariously as we look at the world around us, we experience groaning. We groan on behalf of others. We groan along with God's creation. Groaning, I think, is a universal expression of pain and of loss. It's something shared by us all. And yet groaning, as I experience it, as I see it, isn't always a sign of resignation or a sign of despair. It can be that for sure. It often is. But groaning can also be an expression of defiant hope, of actually holy longing, of anticipation, of right expectation that things should and can and will be different. Groaning, it turns out, can be hopeless, yes, but it also can be hopeful. Even as we continue to express the horror and the pain at what is going on around us or in us or to us, often inexpressible suffering that we can only groan because of it. How can that be? It turns out that the difference between what we might characterize as groaning that is hopeless and groaning that actually is hopeful has to do with the conviction we carry of what is yet to come. Or maybe, to put our finger right on it, our conviction that there is someone, God the Father, who is not yet finished this story. He's not yet completed the work he's begun. 
He's not yet wrapped it all up. And today we come toward the end of our renewed series. We only have one more week in this series. And we're going to explore today just that. What does it mean to live in a groaning world? What does it mean to live in between? What does it mean to live in a a hurt-filled world as hopeful groaners? What does that mean? Because we've been talking a lot about what it means that God is bringing his whole earth and all of us to renewal. That that's the goal. And yet we've also acknowledged as we've walked along that we live in a world that is not renewed. That is often filled with suffering and sin and struggle. Where there is continual hurt, death, despair. What does it mean for us to live in this world? In this reality? Throughout this series, we've been trying to address in different ways these big worldview questions about identity and the reality of the world we live in and what's wrong with it anyway and what's the solution. And in some ways today, all of those questions coalesce as we consider what does it mean for us to be participants in God's story now, here, in the middle of the muck and the hurt and the pain. We've often talked in the past as a congregation about how we live in the gap. We live in the gap between when Christ came, God in the flesh, living among us and teaching about the kingdom and demonstrating that he was bringing the kingdom of God in himself and and then dying and rising again and ascending to the right hand of the Father and pouring out his Holy Spirit. Those events which have changed the course of history and yet we still look forward to the time when Christ will come and all evil will be vanquished and death will finally be done and there will be no more suffering and pain and groaning and tears. And we live in between those times. We live in the gap. We live in this gap, though, as God's spirit people. Somehow, God has brought a little bit of the future by his Holy Spirit into the present. And he's commissioned us to live as his people in the midst of this gap, giving testimony to him and what he's going to do for all of creation through Christ. In many ways, The whole New Testament is really about one thing. Based on what Christ has done, the Holy Spirit takes that and makes it real in people's lives. Makes it real that Christ's resurrection now is coming true in us and will ultimately be true for the world as God recreates it and resurrects us. The whole of the New Testament is us working that out. What does it mean that God has come in Christ? What does it mean that he is present by his Holy Spirit? What does that mean for us as we follow him. It's all about identity. It's all about who we are in the world that we live in. And uh, so as we've grappled through these worldview questions, I, I recognize we've, we've kind of gone to some of them and gone to others, but really everything is rooted ultimately in the question of who. Who is God and who are we? And what does it mean for us to live now as his people. And so as we move toward that, I wanted to take us to a chapter in the book of Romans and just kind of walk through it together. Um, We had a great conversation through Romans 8 in our Zoom study this week, and uh, we're wrapping that study up soon too. We had a tremendous conversation where we'll explore a lot of different rabbit trails, and I'm going to try not to bring all those rabbit trails into today. But I do think walking through a bit of Romans 8 to discover what does it mean for us to live as God's hope-filled people in a world that is growing? What does that mean for us to live as God's spirit people? I think this gets us right down to the core 
of what God is doing now in us and through us for the world. So if you have a Bible or if you want to open it up on another screen or on your phone or whatever, look up Romans chapter 8. And we're going to walk through mostly the, the second half of it together. I invite you to do that. Romans 8, ah, you know, there's so much we could say about it. It's considered one of the high points in all of Scripture and certainly one of the high points in all of Paul's letters. And there is something about Romans 8 that personally I just keep coming back to because it, it captures so much of what is true about us because of what Christ has done and the Spirit has done. And I find that there's so much of my mind and my heart that continues to come back to this. And I, I, I do encourage you, the little bit we're going to touch on today, it invites us to go further and I encourage you to return to it maybe in this week or in the month ahead and to really soak in the truth that is there in Romans 8 for you. So Romans 8 begins with these words. Therefore, based on everything Paul has already said beforehand, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we're not going to spend a lot of time in the first part of of Romans 8, but I just want to highlight this opening verse because it is so definitive based on what Christ has done for us. And we've talked all the way through this series that Jesus came to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He came to do what Israel was unable to complete, though the Father had wanted them to. He came as the perfect Israelite, came as the perfect human, but also came as the Son of God. And because of what Jesus has done, He turns around and offers that to us. And as a result, we can live condemnation-free. That is such a powerful truth that I know right there, we could literally stay right there. So many of us need to, to really take that in, to let it permeate our hearts and minds, because I know for a fact that so many of us walk around feeling condemned. Even when we struggle with something, we feel like, Oh, now God's going to give up on me or I'm, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling this judgment from, from God or, or whatever it is, the accusation of the enemy. And we need to sit with the truth that in Christ there's no condemnation. Why? Because he took that for us. He did what we couldn't do and then he stepped in and took from us the condemnation that we deserve. There's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ. And the first part of Romans 8, what Paul wants to do is establish the fact that because of what Christ has done and now giving us the Holy Spirit, our fundamental identity has changed. We are now people of the Spirit. And we talked again through this series about how God always wanted to dwell among his people and how that developed through the story to the point where God came to live in human beings, in his people, in you and I. And because of that, our identity is fundamentally changed. We are now spirit people, people of God's Holy Spirit. And all through Paul's letters, and particularly here, he wants people who follow Jesus, people who've received the Spirit, to understand this has changed your identity completely. A little further on, in verse 14, we read, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. That's the legal status of a son. And by him, by the Holy Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, because of the spirit that's been given to us, we can speak to the Father the same way Jesus does. Our identity has really changed. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we 
are God's children. Now, if we are children, we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. The very first thing about our identity that, that, that Paul wants us to understand is that we are spirit people. And because of that, our identity, our relationship has fundamentally changed. We've been adopted into a new family. We now live under a totally different regime, as it were. We're not slaves. We're now in the Father's household. Uh, we now relate to one another as brothers and sisters. The way we think about the people around us has now been reshaped and reframed according to what the Spirit has done, according to what Jesus has done. And new creation has begun. The Holy Spirit, Paul characterizes this in other places he wrote, is like the first fruit of a greater harvest that has been brought into the present and given to us. A deposit guaranteeing what's to come. You could almost put it like this. The Holy Spirit comes and and gives us a little taste of the prototype of what is yet going to be true for everyone. And that's important because what it means is that God has taken his intended goal for all of creation. He's taken a bit of that from the future and he's planted it in the present. He's planted it in you and I. Which means that in some very real way, we're able to experience and live out the new creation God intends for all right now, right in our relationships, in our marriages, in our workplace, in our schools. You and I can live as living previews of what's to come because God's spirit lives in us. This is at the absolute rock bottom of who we are because of what Jesus has done and given us in the Holy Spirit. And when I look at all of Paul's letters, but even the whole New Testament, this truth about who you are and who we are, um, it informs everything. It changes the very way we think about one another and the lives that we live. And so very practically, as we consider what it means to be God's spirit people, I think we have a lot of maybe um, reframing to do as we continue to read the scripture and understand that. But I actually want to invite you just practically to receive that about yourself, to receive God's truth about you and your identity. I don't know how often you think of the fact that you are a spirit person. That sounds weird, like you're a ghost or something. But to know that your identity now is that you are actually claimed by God himself, that God has placed his Holy Spirit in you, in the church, in his community, in a way that means that's our go-to. That's our, our basic understanding of our lives now. That we are his. That we belong to his family. And I think we need to receive that. And, and to sit with that. And to, to give praise to God for that. But to let it really permeate our hearts and our minds. Because a lot of things try to shape our identity. Don't they? A lot of people do. Um, a lot of advertising does. A lot of ideologies do. A lot of our experiences from the past or maybe our current realities try to tell us this is who you are. This is, who you'll, this is all you'll ever be. Um, um, this is how you should live because of who you are. And many of those things are total lies. Understanding 
that we are God's, that we are part of God's family, we belong to God, that he has placed his Holy Spirit in us, that needs to become square one for us. It reshapes everything about the way we understand the world, the way we live in relationship. And when we look through the writings of Paul in particular, that's always his go-to. Even when he's dealing with some ugly stuff in several of the churches and Christians' lives, instead of trying to browbeat them into whatever, doing various things, he always brings them back to the basics first and says, remember who you are. You're not that anymore. You're now God's spirit people. And I invite you to receive that. God's truth about you is that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a member of the family of God. We are God's spirit people. The next thing that shapes our identity is that we are hopeful people. And here's where we get to the topic of groaning in particular. Paul goes on and says, because he had mentioned that we suffer along with Christ and we also share in his glory. Then he goes on and says this, I consider that our present suffering are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, which is quite a statement to make when you think about it. Our present sufferings. Now, Paul was no stranger to sufferings. He had endured a lot. But there's a lot of people who have endured even more. For Paul to say that our present sufferings, kind of whatever they are, cannot be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us is a profound truth that gives us hope because we do suffer. We experience deep struggle. Some of us, a lot more than others. Some of us can look at our lives and say, my life has been characterized by suffering and struggle. And so to hear the truth that God is saying, essentially, I know you're suffering. I groan with you. I weep for you. But you need to know that your suffering, the glory I'm going to reveal in you, will so far outstrip the suffering you've experienced that it won't even be comparable. I think that gives us tremendous hope in the midst of struggle. Then Paul goes on to talk about creation. He says, For creation waits in eager expectation of the children of God, for the children of God to be revealed. For creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Paul first talks about how creation groans. And I don't know if that's something, if that's uh, language that you always think about or maybe a filter that you see, but what he recognizes is that we live in a world that's groaning. We live in a world that is distressed. And we can see that in a lot of ways. But what he acknowledges here is that the creation, its renewal, is somehow connected to ours by God's choice. It reminds us, and we've looked at that in this story of Renewed a long time, a long time ago, but we've brought it back a number of times as well, is that when God created the world, he created it good, and he placed us as his human images with responsibility over creation, to be mediators, as it were, priests in creation. When humanity rejected God's 
leadership and sinned, all of creation fell with it, fell with them. And in a very real way, creation's renewal and our resurrection, creation's, uh, you know, redemption and our redemption, they're connected. And Paul wants us to see that. Because creation that's groaning is groaning in anticipation, in hope for our redemption. God is bringing all of creation, including us, to his intended goal. And it's, it's as though creation knows it. So the groaning that even creation is experiencing isn't a despair-filled groaning, but rather a groaning that is looking forward to the redemption of us, God's images, us who were created from the earth to be responsible for the earth. Then, then he goes on. He says, not only so, not only is creation groaning, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So not only is creation groaning, but we participate in that groaning along with creation. Again, though, though that groaning is real, though that groaning is an expression of, of suffering and struggle and ache and, and, and anger at evil and a desire to see change come, that groaning is not a groaning of hopeless despair. It's a groaning of hopeful anticipation because we believe, along with creation, that God will remedy this. He has in Christ. He will complete it by the Spirit. And so this groaning is a looking forward to what God will ultimately do in the end. For in this hope we are saved, verse 24, but hope that's seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We're in the middle for a long time. And in the midst of the middle, we groan, but we groan with hope, knowing that the author of this story has not yet finished the last chapter. Then Paul goes on to something that I think is mind-boggling. Not only does creation groan, not only do we groan, but God's own spirit in us groans along with us. In the same way, verse 26, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Do you hear that? Creation groans, we groan, and the Spirit groans through us. It's like the Holy Spirit takes the groaning of creation, takes our groaning, brings it all together, and then offers it as a prayer to the Father in a way that fully understands what God is doing, where God is going, what God is up to. Takes all of our ache and our hurt and our confusion. Takes all that we don't even know to say. Brings it all together and offers it as a prayer on our behalf. Personally, I find this particular verse so encouraging. I also find that I keep coming back to it when I'm with people who are struggling to know how to pray what to pray, what to say, what to do. To be reminded that even or perhaps especially at those times where we don't know how to pray, 
we've got someone within us, the Holy Spirit of God, who takes our wordless groans and prays them in our name to the Father, is so profoundly encouraging and gives me tremendous hope. We groan, but we do so as hopeful people. Then Paul completes Romans 8 by bringing us down again to the core. We're spirit people, we're hopeful people, and we're loved people. The end of Romans 8 is probably, it's the Mount Everest in many ways of everything. It's from this place we see so clearly. Paul completes Romans 8 by saying, What shall we say then in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's rhetorical. Nobody. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Brings us back to the start, right? There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Who is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of the Father and is also interceding for us, which just caps it all off. Not only is the Holy Spirit interceding from within us, but the Son of God is interceding at the right hand of the Father. Man, if we don't know how to pray, I want to say, it's okay. We've got two people in our court who know how to pray really, really well and are doing it for you and I. We could take great comfort in that. But he goes on. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he begins to list these things that we often groan about, that we should groan about. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble? Hardship? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or danger? Or or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, and can I just say I hope you are. Paul says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul wants us to know, God wants you to know, that you are loved and that there's nothing. We have so much to groan about. Nothing in all of creation, no matter what is going on, no matter what our hearts are crying out to change, no matter what is assailing us, none of that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We are a loved people. You are a loved person. Not condemned, fully loved, filled with hope by the Spirit. And that roots our identity in a way that fundamentally transforms the way that we live in our lives today. This story of being renewed is a story that God has brought from his future into the presence, into the present by his spirit. And he wants us to grab a hold of that and to live in the light of that.
to know who we are so that as we love and as we live and as we work and as we play, we now do so as God's spirit people, God's hopeful people, groaning, yes, but groaning in anticipation of what God is going to do. And doing that all along, knowing that there's absolutely nothing that can change the love of God for us. You know, when I think back in my life, there was a moment early on uh, when I was a young, young pastor, and I went to visit a friend who was dying of cancer, a fairly young man now, I realize, (laughs) feels young to me. I think he was probably in his early 50s. but I was in my early 20s. So I, I went to visit him in, in, the, in the Cancer Institute in, in Edmonton. And he was in his last days. I had visited him quite a bit as he was fighting cancer. He was in his last days. And I, I do think 25 years ago they weren't as good at dealing with pain, to be really honest. because, Or maybe the type of cancer he has, just they couldn't do it. I just so vividly remember visiting him there. And I, I had never witnessed the kind of pain and groaning um, that, that I saw. Um, it, was, it was unbelievably brutal um, to watch him racked in unearthly pain. And when I went into the room uh, to sit with him, thinking, I, th- I think, thinking that I was there to offer him something, um, I found to my to my shame, I, I felt ashamed, although later I dealt with it and realized there was nothing to feel ashamed of. But to my shame, I sat beside his bed as he, his back was arched in pain. And he was crying out. And I sat beside his bed and I literally could not say a word. I couldn't get anything out. I sat there beside his bed and I just bawled. I bawled. And I cried, and I cried, and I cried, and I couldn't get a word out, and I couldn't pray for him. At least, I didn't think I could, and I, I just was unable to do anything. As, and, and, and he's racked in pain, and he's moaning and groaning, and I'm weeping and feeling dumb about it. Not so much the crying, just my inability to get control of myself. And in that moment of incredible... Um, groaning from his place of deep pain he then prayed for me and he um, through the gasps I kid you not he prayed for me he prayed for my life he prayed for my uh, family he prayed for my ministry um, and he did it with such grace rooted deeply in his identity as a spirit person, as a, a love child of God. And, um, and, and then he finished, and, and I was still unable to control myself, and I sort of hugged him, whatever was sort of appropriate with his pain level, and I left. And uh, he, was, he was gone about two days later. And that sat with me for, well, still sits with me, obviously, still impacts me today, but... Um, what I remember from that are so many things, but one of them was this, that he was groaning with incredible hope. He demonstrated for me as a young pastor and as a young friend um, 
all that it means to be rooted in an identity where the present suffering will be outstripped by the future glory. Where we as God's spirit people, yes, we groan and we suffer, but we do so with hope. Um, and that even in the midst of that, I think he demonstrated for me uh, what it means for the Holy Spirit to intercede through us, through me, and through him. Um, even when we, I certainly couldn't express that. And uh, I've had a lot of opportunity to think about that, but I offer it to you because it reminds me that it's in our weakness and in our groaning, in our often inarticulate expressions, that the Holy Spirit not only roots us in who we are, but then, like my friend Ian, um, enables us to even turn and serve others from our place of suffering, which is exactly what he did for me. And uh, it shaped my life, it still does, um, as I remember the hope that we can have even in the midst of suffering and of pain. Listen, my hope for all of us as we continue to follow Jesus is that somehow we would be fully rooted in our identity as loved people, hopeful people, spirit people. And I want to conclude today by offering a song by Matt Redman uh, about the love that never lets us go. Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey, whether you're finding Jesus for the first time or you have been following him for years. Do you know someone who would be encouraged by what you heard today? We invite you to share this podcast so they can be encouraged too. For more information or to ask more questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for the Erickson Covenant Church.